Hope you have your Bibles open to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. We will be studying quite a bit from the book of Philippians this morning and hope that you prepare to be able to engage in a study of the Word of God along with me. We are certainly grateful for your presence, especially those that are visiting with us. We are glad that you are with us. Hope that you can stick around and get to visit with us after services are over. And we are uh, indeed thankful for your presence and your interest in spiritual things. This morning we are going to be continuing a series that we've been in throughout this year on the topic of fellowship that has been our theme for this year, and we are going to continue our study of that uh, this morning. And we hope that you are able to uh, study along with us and think through some things concerning uh, fellowship and from the Word of God, and particularly from the book of Philippians. I do want to make this uh, an announcement. Uh, next week uh, is going to be the first Sunday in October, if you can believe it, that we are entering into the last quarter of this year. Uh, this year has just flown by. But I do want to make you aware of just in the planning and preparation that I have in my sermons that on the first Sunday of the month, probably as kind of a general rule from here on out, I'm going to try to have something that is geared for... Uh, uh, towards first principles, something that might be a sermon or a topic that would relate especially to someone who is not yet a Christian. And so if you have somebody that you are talking with about the gospel, if you are having someone who would like for them to come to church and you would like to invite them to come along with you, hopefully any Sunday would be uh, an appropriate Sunday. Uh, for them to come Wednesday night for a Bible study and Bible classes. But in particular, if there's a sermon that might address the, the plan of salvation or the nature and the role of the Lord's church and its work or something like that, uh, that first Sunday morning sermon is going to be particularly geared towards addressing some of those kinds of questions, those kinds of topics that maybe you've already been studying along with your friends or your neighbors. And so I just want to make you aware of that, that you can kind of come to expect that. Uh, and so if there's someone that you're visiting with and talking with and you're trying to get them to come to church, that first Sunday of every month would be a really good time for them to, to perhaps come. And so I uh, hope that will be a, a benefit to all of us as we all seek to grow in our knowledge of the Word of God. As we, as we mentioned, this year we have been committed to understanding the idea and the concept of fellowship and understanding the biblical nature and the biblical role of fellowship. And I think we've had to probably tear down some misnomers about fellowship, that fellowship is not just about social and recreational activities, but primarily in which we see the gospel rights and gospel writers use that idea of fellowship it is about participation in spiritual activities, that we are joining in something about a spiritual work, a work for the gospel. And in Philippians, we see that the word fellowship is something that becomes a very key word and a very key concept throughout this letter. It's a very short letter. It's only four chapters long. But it is very powerful in how Paul presents this notion a fellowship, that we are participants and we are partakers and that we are partners. 
And in Philippians chapter 1 and in verse 5, he tells them, walking to the church as he is addressing all the saints there in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, he says in verse 5, in view of your participation, or as in the reading more the translation that would use the word fellowship, in your participation or in your fellowship in the gospel. I think sometimes we think of ourselves as having fellowship with one another, or we think of ourselves as having fellowship with God or Christ. And those are certainly true, but we also need to have a, an appropriate understanding that we have fellowship in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Philippians is a wonderful letter that shows us how the local church primarily can have fellowship with the gospel. And that's what I really want us to think about this morning as we study along from the book of Philippians. I want us to think about ways and very practical ways that we have fellowship in the gospel. And this is, while sometimes we might talk about fellowship in, in personal relationships that are very applicable in individuals, that in our individual lives, that I need to make sure that I am putting into practice or that you are putting into practice. What this morning I want us to think about is a collective way as the church. How do we as the body of Christ, how do we have a partnership in the gospel? We have recognized that fellowship is based upon God's faithfulness. We have seen that we have fellowship with Jesus and that the demands of that, that we honor Him as our King. And those are all going to be principles that we live by if we're going to have fellowship with one another. And then being in fellowship with Jesus, as we looked at last month, is going to mean that we suffer along with Him. But fellowship with God, Christ, and each other means that we have participation in the gospel. We have fellowship in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the word koinonia, that's which we get our word fellowship. In the Greek, it's the word koinonia. It means a sharing and a participation. And the first use of that word is here in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 5. Paul will use it a few other times. He uses it a couple um, a time or two in Philippians chapter 3 and once at least in chapter 4 as well. And I think if we will examine this letter, the letter to the Philippians, and we will see some evidence and some ways, some very practical ways in which we can have fellowship in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the first thing that I want us to think about is asking ourselves, how does the local church have fellowship? And I think we see that it is going to come through our continued support and commitment of the gospel. That if we are going to have fellowship with the gospel as a local church, it has to come through our support of the gospel. And that means a variety of things. That term support, it's not just talking about financial support, while that is certainly going to be included, it's going to involve some other things as well. And hopefully we can see some ways that this morning. But we're going to first look at how Paul uses this idea of fellowship. In Philippians chapter 4, if you will turn to the last chapter of Philippians, we're going to kind of make our way, uh, starting from the back, going uh, towards the front this morning. And so in Philippians chapter 4, and in verse 15, if you will read with me, in Philippians chapter 4 and in verse 15, 
Paul says, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared, and that word as translated here in the New American Standard Bible, it's that same word, koinonia, or fellowship, that no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full. And have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Paul, he shows that the church at Philippi, that they were committed to helping Paul in a financial way. That is certain that is evident he and receiving. So he makes it very clear that he's talking about this financial support in these verses that they sent what he calls a gift. And I think that's important for us to think about as a frame of reference for how Paul describes the relationship between the, the preacher and the financial support that the church gives to him. He is appreciative. He is thankful for this. He's not writing this in a self-serving way. I think it's very sad, and I, I can understand why. Whenever you turn the TV and you watch a lot of televangelists and they're trying to just make it seems like that they are certainly greedy it is, and that they are very self-serving and that the things that they're trying to promote or trying to sell and that they're trying to uh, just uh, hoodwink you, it feels like. But Paul is not trying to write this from a self-serving position. He's not trying to say, hey, you need to give me more. <laughs> He's saying, you've given me enough. He's saying, I am thankful for this. And he puts this in the context of a gift that you have given me something. And I am thankful. I am appreciative. And so he's writing a letter of thanksgiving to the church. He's not saying you need to write and give me more. He's saying, I am thankful for that. This isn't about Paul asking and looking for more money. We need to quit assuming that preachers, when they study or preach on the topic of giving, or when we talk about financial support or finances, that it's about getting more money. It's not about that at all in Paul's way of talking about it. He says in verse 16 that you have sent a gift more than once for my needs. And he's not saying, and I need more, does he? He doesn't add that kind of statement. He says in verse 18, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift that you sent. He's saying, I have been given this, and I am thankful for it. Uh, I am amply supplied. That I think it's incredibly sad that preachers have this reputation for always trying to just fill their pocketbooks, either for them or for their congregations. I think true gospel preachers are going to follow Paul's example here and they're going to learn to be appreciative of what they have been given. 
And maybe this is something that preachers have failed at and on occasion, and I think something that I personally failed at, but we need to be more uh, thankful and appreciative. We need to express and articulate that thankfulness. And so this morning, I want to say thank you to the church here for the financial support that you helped me with. Because you give me a great privilege to be able to study God's Word and have opportunities and find opportunities in a full-time way, in a full-time capacity to try to teach the Gospel to to people. And Paul makes it very clear in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and in verse 14, Paul says, So also the Lord directed those who proclaimed the Gospel to get their living from the Gospel. Gospel preachers, they have a right and the liberty to receive wages for preaching. And Paul, he is thankful for that. He's thankful for the Philippians for being there for him and helping him and giving him that honor and that privilege to be able to preach the Gospel. And in a very real way, and in a way that sometimes we don't get, and we'll talk about that, As partners in the Gospel, sometimes it's not always about numbers. (laughs) We'll try to see that. this, But in a very real way, this is hard and fast. We can say this is a very self-evident way in which we are giving and supporting the Gospel to be preached. And in just a very practical way, whenever we give support to the gospel. Preachers local or preachers who are in other areas and working and striving to share the gospel or whenever there are men that we might bring in to teach us for like we have a gospel meeting coming up soon. Like whenever we have men who come and preach for us. It's a very practical way and we have fellowship with them when we support them for preaching the Gospel. But Paul not only helps preachers understand how they ought to view that financial relationship and the support they receive, he also helps churches who are supporting a man to preach the Gospel. And how the church needs to understand that relationship. Notice in Philippians 4, In Philippians 4, notice how Paul describes this support. Notice in verse 17, Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice well-pleasing to God. Paul, he says, this is a gift. It's a sacrifice. Those are the terms in which Paul describes this giving. And I think that helps the congregation understand the financial responsibilities and the financial commitment that they are investing in, that they are making whenever they do support a gospel preacher when they do become partners in the Gospel. And that's how Paul is using this. He's using some investment terms here that in verse 17, I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Paul's not saying I'm going solo here. 
He's recognizing that I am able to do this because of you. That I am in this position because you have enabled me. You are investing in the gospel and we are partners together. We're working together. We're not working against each other. And it's not that you are my boss or he doesn't use the language of employer and employee. He uses the language of a gift or a sacrifice and investment that we're working together as partners. And so he says, I want because of that investment, because of that gift, because of your sacrifice, I want to not take credit for myself. I want you to have the profit which increases to your account, he says. I think that's incredibly important for us to just stop and appreciate. And the profit that a church might gain when they make a commitment to supporting the Gospel being preached. It's going to look differently than if they were investing in a company on Wall Street. Most often churches invest in spiritual activities. Preaching the Gospel, for instance. There's not necessarily a numerical way to evaluate the kind of spiritual growth that hopefully we are engaged in right now at this moment in time. We might be able to count how many people are here. We might be able to count the amount of money that was given in the collection plate. And those might be helpful for us to count and to understand and put down on paper. But hopefully our spiritual growth, the spiritual activity and the worship and the growth that we have in our faith is far exceeding anything that we could ever count numerically. That becomes the challenge sometimes when we come to evaluate, is this worth it or not? Is this work worth it or not? Should we invest in this? Sometimes spiritual work cannot be measured in numbers. And if we measure our return by numbers and money, then we're oftentimes going to be disappointed. What churches need to do is look for spiritual growth and ask themselves if a man is indeed working and finding opportunities to share the gospel and teach others. We may not be able to judge him based on the results. Preaching the gospel is not a, a results based on uh, is not a it's not a job based on results like sales necessarily. Paul said that this is a sacrifice, that this is a gift. And churches have a wonderful opportunity to have a share in that. To have fellowship with a man who dedicates himself to preach the Gospel. And then, you go to Philippians chapter 2. A second way, a very practical way, in which we can see a way in which we ought to be partners in the Gospel is having a love and an appreciation for those who dedicate their lives to preaching the Gospel. And Paul doesn't talk about himself. That's what's so amazing here. In Philippians chapter 2 and in verse 19, he begins to talk about two men. He talks about Timothy. We're probably very familiar with Timothy. But he also talks about Epaphroditus. And he describes both of these men as 
servants the Lord. He describes Timothy as a servant, as a son in verse 22. But you know of his proven worth that he served me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. An apprentice, like a son who is right there by his father learning. He says, that's Timothy. He's a servant. In verse 25, he describes Epaphroditus. And I love these descriptions. He says, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, fellow, fellowship, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. And Epaphroditus is this fellow worker. He's someone who's working with Paul. Paul's not going solo, and I think that's what I appreciate so much about this letter, that Paul, he recognizes all of the people who have a part and a role who he has some camaraderie with, that he is being helped by and assisted by. And he recognizes both Timothy and Epaphroditus. And he describes Epaphroditus in this context, we learn that he got sick and that caused some concern from the Philippian church. And he says in verse 30 that um, he came close to death for the work of Christ. Here's a man who put his life on the line to serve the church and to help Paul. And Paul, he says in a very practical and a very real way how we need to treat these kind of men. In verse 29, receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. Hold men like him in high regard. Churches need to learn to love and appreciate the men who dedicate themselves to preaching the Gospel. Don't take this as a rebuke either. Y'all do a very very job of doing this and holding men in high regard. But it's something that takes time and practice to grow in that love and appreciation for those who dedicate themselves to preaching and sharing the Gospel. Because these men may go to places that some of us might not be willing to go to. They might live in difficult places or hard circumstances. They might make financial sacrifices that others of us might not be willing to make for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the Gospel. Sometimes they might be subject to ridicule or mockery or even betrayal from fellow Christians. And above all of as Paul would describe in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, whenever Paul is talking about all of the things that he suffered for his preaching of the gospel, how he was stoned and how he was shipwrecked and imprisoned and all those things that he went through, how five times he received lashes of 39 times... You think about the beatings that he took. But he says, after all of that, 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and in verse 28, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Daily pressure to think about all the time. I don't know about you, and hopefully you do think about the church often, but many gospel preachers, and especially those who are preaching in a full-time capacity, their whole life nearly revolves around thinking about the local church. They think about the church. They think about improvements that they can make. They think about things that they can help with other people. They think about some of the issues that members might be dealing with in ways that they can pray for them or help them. They think about that and it's an added concern for them. We need to love those men who preach the gospel. We need to love their wives who are assisting them and being beside them throughout those times as well. But what is amazing that most preachers will gladly accept those responsibilities and those that role. They will take it on for the work and the cause of Christ. And as partners in the gospel, we need to love that. We need to love that there are people who are dedicated to them and that we are able to help them, that we are a partner with them, that we have association with them. We can hold them in high regard. We need to love and respect and appreciate them. We need to pray for them. We need to pray for their families. We need to recognize that sometimes it is easy to have disregard for those kinds of people. In the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, and in verse 24, Jesus was in His own hometown of Nazareth. And in what is generally considered His very first sermon, that He was there in Nazareth, preaching and reading from Isaiah the scroll. And Jesus... He tells them, you're not going to like what I had to say. And he said in verse 24, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Even Jesus was rejected. We need to be careful that we avoid falling into that trap. Where we have little regard or little respect for those who preach the gospel. We need to follow what Paul says. We need to have a high esteem and love those who preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. A third and very practical way in which we can be a partner in the gospel, as Paul would describe in Philippians chapter 2, and in verse 17, he says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You see this relationship of sharing. He said in verse 18, You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. 
Paul, as he's speaking about his own circumstances, he is imprisoned as he is writing this letter. And he, say, he sees that the sacrifice that he can make because the Philippians have helped him. They have been there with him. They have been committed in their faith and the sacrifices that they have made. And Paul, he reminds them of that. That based upon your sacrifices, based upon the commitment of your faith, you know, maybe in some of the first couple of ideas and, and points that we've made this morning, it seems maybe, well, preacher's just self, you know, this is kind of self-serving for the preacher, you know. He's just wanting a good thank you as he goes out the door. That's not it at all. Paul, he turns it around and he says, this is because of you. He says, this is because of you. Because of what you are able to do, because of your commitment, because of your faith, because of your obedience to the gospel, because of your devotion. That has allowed me to preach the gospel. And because of that, Paul's been able to make some interesting sacrifices all on his own, such as being in prison for the sake of the gospel. And even as Paul is here in prison, he says, I have joy. And I want you to rejoice. I want you to share in this joy. Paul sees his service and his sacrifice as a reason for joy and he wants the Philippians to share in that joy. Because Paul, he understood this important point. He understood that because of the opportunities he had been given, it was because of the Philippians and their commitment. And the gospel gives us reason to have joy, even in tribulation. And so Paul, he wants to not feel sorry for Paul. He says, I want you to rejoice with me. And I want you to continue on in your dedication, in your commitment, in your faith, your obedience. That is how you are going to be a partner in the gospel. That you understand you invest in the gospel. And that, that investment is going to produce a return in you. Your dedication, your faithfulness, your service and sacrifice. That is a reason to have joy. Even when it comes to difficult circumstances. In the Lord's church, we need to understand and we need to rejoice in every circumstance and opportunity that the Gospel gives us. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13 that I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And in that context, he's not saying that if I go jump off the Eiffel Tower, then I'm going to be able to survive that. You know, or something. That's not what he, what he means. He's saying that because of the Gospel, because of the support that you have given me, and I have learned the lesson of contentment. That whether I am doing well or whether I am in need, I have learned that Christ is with me and Christ gives, gives me strength. No matter what circumstance we might find ourselves in, in good times or bad times, in, in, or in between times, Christ is with us. And being a participant in the Gospel may not always be easy, but it will always be worth it. 
That's why Paul is able to talk about in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5 and in verse 3, he is able to say these words, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. Even if we are in tribulation, there is something that we can look forward to. There's something that makes it all worth it. In the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 2, in Revelation chapter 2, Paul, or not Paul, but Jesus, rather, as he is writing or stating some things to the church at Smyrna, and John is writing these things down. Jesus tells them that He knows of your tribulation. I know your tribulation and your poverty, He says in verse 9. But then in a parenthetical statement, He says, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for ten days be till death, and I will give you the crown of life. And then he says in verse 11, But he, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. There's a reason to rejoice. There's a reason to have joy. Because even if we are called to suffer, as long as we are obedient, there's a reward. Even if we are impoverished, we can be rich spiritually through our faithfulness and our dedication to the Gospel. And that's a reason to rejoice. Paul says, I want you to share in my joy. Partners in the Gospel, they're going to share in that joy. Fellowship in the Gospel is through our active sharing of the Gospel. Share the Gospel with others. Partnership in the Gospel means that we need to share the Gospel. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15, Paul says, "...so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world." holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I do not run in pain nor toil. As a true test of our commitment and participation in the gospel and fellowship with Jesus Christ, it is through sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul, he recognizes we live in a crooked and perverse corrupt, evil world. And what is our responsibility? 
Because we have been shaped and transformed by the gospel, we need to, to shed forth its light. We need to shine as lights in the world. He calls for us to be good examples, first and foremost, that we to reflect the light of Christ. Reminded of what Jesus would say in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 5, towards the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus would talk about our influence. He says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world, a set on a hill cannot be hidden. Think about what Jesus is saying here. That we are called to be different. Like a baked potato. And if I get a baked potato, I'm going to usually add a little bit of salt on there. And it's not because that salt tastes like the potato. It's because it tastes different and it brings out a different flavor to that potato. As the salt of the earth appears to be different than the world. We live in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, but we need to be different. We're not to become corrupted like the world. We're to be different. We're to shine forth our light. And when we are good examples and when we have influence and when we protect our influence from this world, we can be committed to holding fast the Word of life. We need to stay true to the Gospel and to the Word of God. I think nothing would be more important for our, our evangelistic efforts than to stay true to what the Gospel has called us to be. That's why Paul says in Philippians 1 and verse 27, to conduct yourselves in a way that is worthy of the Gospel. You have to live the Gospel first. We have to hold it fast. We can't retreat from it. We have to hold it forth. We have to let others learn about it. And our example might be just one of the biggest things that will influence people. The way you live your life, the way you talk, the way you dress, the way you think, the way that you lead your life, that is going to be evident and visible and people can see it. Do you say you believe in Christ? Do you say you believe in the Gospel, but you don't act like a Christian? If that's true, you're going to damage the work of the Gospel. Do you engage in sin and corrupt activities to just try to fit in among your co-workers? Do you go to social or happy hour with, with people? You might lose your effectiveness when you share the message of repentance with them. Participants in the Gospel will share the Word of God with those who are lost in sin. It's something that we need to learn. It might be a spouse who is a believer who is trying to convert their unbelieving spouse. It might be a friend or family member, a co-worker, a neighbor, someone that we know personally and that we love deeply, that we want to bring them to know the Gospel. 
you are called to share the gospel. And when we share the gospel with others, that is a very active way in which we are a partner and we have fellowship in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so evangelism begins and ends with us holding fast the word of life so that others are called to see it know about it. We have to be committed to the gospel. We have to know the gospel. We have to be able to share the gospel. And so the local church can have a fellowship in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Call to be participants and partners in the gospel. That fellowship manifests itself in several ways, maybe from financial support to sharing the gospel with others. And as partners in any endeavor, there are going to be obligations that we have to fulfill. Are you living up to your obligations? Are we, as a congregation of God's people, are we living in a way that's worthy of the Gospel? We are thankful for the fellowship that we have with Jesus Christ and our God with each other in the Gospel. We need to be sure in a way that is in harmony with what they expect us to live. This morning, if you are not living your life in a way that would be pleasing to God, we urge you and implore you to come back to Him. To come back, repent, turn away from sin. You know, the trials and the temptations of this life can be burdensome and hard and difficult. Jesus provides rest for your soul. If you've never named the name of Christ and you need to put Him on in baptism, we'll be glad to help you do that. If you are a Christian, but you've not been living the way that's appropriate and worthy of the Gospel, we want to help you come back and make things right, that you can be restored to a right relationship with God. If we can help you in some way, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?